Amen. Amen. If you got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 18. We are uh, continuing in our study of Acts, and um, the Acts of the Apostle is what they of the Apostles is what they call it. We know that uh, chapter one opens up, and it comes with the uh, the great command uh, to take the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And uh, how is that going to happen? Well, then they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, the day of Pentecost comes, and uh, the Holy Spirit descends, and Peter begins to preach, and thousands of people are saved, and then the apostles begin to preach. And so in Jerusalem, many Jews were saved at the time, and then it uh, began to spill out from there. And we see the gospel going uh, throughout the region, and uh, then through the process of them uh, coming to Cornelius and coming to um, the, the Gentiles, the gospel began to spread to those uh, people as well. And then it got to where the first missionary journey was sent out, and that was uh, from Antioch, which was Paul. And uh, as Paul was sent out on his missionary journeys, he went on three missionary journeys, and uh, we, he had completed one already, and uh, he's in the midst of his second missionary journey here in chapter 18. And uh, we're going to hear some names tonight uh, from some places, and you can put two and two together and think about, you know, the letters that we hear written throughout uh, Paul's ministry happens right here in the history of Acts and through these places that he is, uh, he is going and he is serving. And uh, so last week we had started um, chapter 18, but I want to back all the way up to the very beginning and uh, restart it so we can get the whole picture of Acts uh, chapter 18. Um, two uh, symbols of the Christian experience that the Bible always teaches us in the New Testament. One is the cross, and we talk about the cross a lot. We talk about the sacrifice that Christ made for us, but it also talks about the sacrifice that we make for Christ. That, that if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we must forsake this world for the sake of Christ. Like, like, we must give up our life in order to serve Christ. And then the yoke of Christ is a great symbol of this yoke. And you know that Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. The yoke is the learning from Christ. So you have the sacrifice, then you have the learning part. Or uh, uh, as being a disciple, we must have both of them to grow. We have to sacrifice and we have to be yoked with Christ and learning from him and becoming more like him and then also making other disciples. After all, that's the whole plan. Disciples to make disciples. I love how fancy all these churches get with their mission statements. But basically, the Bible tells us for disciples to make disciples. That's as simple as that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And it takes knowing Christ of the cross and denying yourself and it also takes you yoking yourself to Christ or someone who represents Christ in your life and it and we serve and we sacrifice and it's essential in Paul's life and he passes it on that's the good news and so we're going to see how he does that so Paul at Corinth we're going to do like a running commentary then we're going to finish with the discipleship theme so Acts chapter 18 I want to uh, read verses 1 through 17 it says this after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus and who had recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was, the, because he was of the same trade, 
he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, uh, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took uh, Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. The Gallio took no notice of these things. Have you ever been to a place where you were totally blown away by the open immorality and the debauchery of what you would see? I mean, you literally stepped somewhere or you went somewhere and you were actually uncomfortable in your spirit because you just knew and felt the sin was abounding around you. Like, you knew immediately that you did not belong there, and neither did any good moral person, much less the Christian, belong there. That's what Paul must have felt like stepping out into Corinth. I think sometimes we think about Corinth, and we don't really think about what it was, but Corinth was one of the most sinful places on all the earth. It was most definitely the most sensual place in all of Greece. Matter of fact, they had several temples. One, the temple of Aphrodite, had a hundred temple prostitutes. I mean, a thousand temple prostitutes. Not including all the other debauchery and all the other uh, morality and for immorality and fornication. The Greeks literally had a term, a verb called to Corinthicize, which means to live in a lustful debauchery or to fornicate. They would brag and say, live like a Corinthian. So in other words, they were, they were not only immoral, but they promoted it. They wanted people to, uh, in, uh, to indulge in it. And as you know, Corinth was a very important part of Greece. Um, it was an ethmos. I hope I said that right. I was worried about that word. It was an ethmos, which is, I guess is like a little finger. I, it best looks like my pinky. You know what I mean? If a, a pinky would stick out in the middle of the sea. 
Um, literally, it had two sides that wrapped around it and joined the southern part of the Greek peninsula with the mainland to the north. And this little isthmus was about three and a half miles wide, and, and which if people crossed it, it would save about 200 miles of perilous navigation to go around it. So, so it was very important because they controlled the port of entry to two major parts of Greece. So Corinth had a population in that isthmus or that area of 200,000 people. So it was like jam-packed with people. And Athens, which was another place there, it was kind of like the intellectual and the cultural center. But Corinth was the place of commerce. Like it had the money, it had the influence, it had a lot of the things that they they would have power. And so it was a very influential city. And while Paul was there in this city, he wrote uh, two epistles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, I said this earlier about reading through the book of Acts. If you study through all of Acts, Paul wrote 10 epistles or 10 letters that we now have in our Bible through the span of the book of Acts. So Paul went there in the midst of this incredibly wicked place. He steps off. He gets the part of it. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. And there they were, or Aquila and Priscilla, and there they were. And what were they? They were tent makers. They, they made things of cloth. And they not only just made tents, but they, they made uh, things out of thick goat's hair. And they were, uh, made rugs and curtains and clothing. And tent says it as well. So he went to work with them. And then relief came from Paul and Silas. Paul was there. He needed help. So Paul and Silas were sent to come and help him, probably through um, Philippi. But then in verse 9, fear gripped Paul. Fear began to haunt Paul. And, and it was at night. You know, the devil always does his greatest work at night. You know what I mean? He is just a creature of the darkness, right? And I don't know about you, but every time I'm sick, the worst time that I feel is always after dark. It always seems that way. It always seems in the middle of the night, the worst things seem to come upon, and the worst things about your mind begin to race, and the things about your fears and, not, and your anxiety begins to race at night. And then there was Paul, and he had this fear, he was gripped, and the devil was breathing down his neck. You ever been gripped by fear? Paul was gripped by fear. He was, he was sure enough tacked by the devil. And you've got to ask yourself, even in, in your own life, what are your own fears? You know, sometimes as a parent, we have fear for our children. I think anybody that has children today in culture and our time, we have fear for our child, right? We have fear or worry. What kind of jobs are they going to get? What kind of families they're going to have? What kind of encounters they're going to have with people? And sometimes if you're not careful, you go down the what if and you go down all these things. You become so fearful, it grips your heart that it begins to, to keep you up at night, right? And it begins, to, it begins to grip your heart. Sometimes as a spouse, you get that way. You worry about your spouse. You worry about your husband or you worry about your wife. And, and fear grips your heart. And yet, here he was, and Paul was gripped by fear. But in verse 10, what does God promise? He says, I am with you. Think about that statement. God tells Paul, I am with you. This is the same promise that he gave to Isaac, Jacob, and the whole Jewish remnant returning from Babylon, to to Jeremiah, to the Jews rebuilding the temple. And Jesus even gave it to us in Matthew 28. I am with you. Let me tell you, no matter what you go through or where you are, when fear grips your heart, you need to run to God. 
and he is there for you. And he will speak to you, and God's presence makes all the difference in the world. Listen, God didn't change his circumstances, but God spoke to Paul and affirmed in him that everything was going to be okay. Paul's fears uh, uh, melted away because of what God had spoken to him, and God's presence calmed his heart. Don't you just love it when God speaks to you and calms your fears? I mean, in the midst of being shaken, I love to think of the story of the disciples on the, on the boat, right? And the great tempest comes up, and they're all fearful. And they're like, where is Jesus? He's asleep, right, down in the bottom of the boat. And they get him up, and he looks at him, oh, ye of little faith, what's wrong with you, right? And he's like, here I am. And he calms their fears, and he, 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 he's in the midst of the storm, and he calms their fears, I can think about in my life how many times God has done that for me. My heart gripped with fear. My heart gripped with wondering what is God doing in my life or what is going to happen. And being so full of fear and then God speaks one word and his presence floods my soul. And I'm like, that's what I was looking for, God. That's what I was looking for. And God's presence makes all the difference in the world. Circumstances didn't change, but God's presence presence changed everything. Are you afraid of the dark? I was. Sometimes I still am. But when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid of the dark. It runs in my family, by the way. There are several in our family that are scared of the dark. I won't tell you which ones they are. I've been sworn to secrecy on that. But I remember living in our house in Houston, Texas, and I was probably in second, I was, I was second or third grade, you know, little guy, little husky guy, you know, going to school, <laughs> as my mom called me. And uh, it's the first time when we, before that, we lived in Arizona, we lived in a trailer. And so in a trailer, you heard everything, saw everything, there was, there was nothing to hide in a trailer, all right? You hear it all. But in this house, it was a split bedroom house. You guys know what split bedrooms are, right? So the master was on one side. I can't use the word master anymore. I'm sorry. The owner's suite was on one side, and, uh, and the secondary bedrooms was on the other side. We'll have to edit that out of the live stream. But anyways, the, 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 the secondary bedrooms were on one side. And so me and my brother, we had like a little Jack and Jill bathroom. He had his room. I had my room. My mom and dad had their room. But in between us was like a, a living room. And it was only probably 15 foot, but to me it was like, you know, a football field length. You know, it was huge. And so I remember waking up, being in a new place, and I was just being so afraid and gripped with fear that someone was in our house, probably after I watched the gremlins or something, you know what I mean? Like I was just afraid there was a gremlin there or something, you know? And I remember here was all, here was the the bad guys were there or something was going to happen, and I remember getting up enough courage to get to the door and looking down that uh, little walkway uh, through through the living room to my parents' door, and I just thought... You know what? If I just had enough guts to make it to that door, you know what I mean? But I just knew by the time I got to the couch or halfway there, someone was going to grab me and pull me out the sliding glass door, you know what I mean? And I don't know why I was, because my mom was always a freak about that. Everything was locked up tight, all right? I mean, everything was always locked up. And so I just remember in my mind thinking, if I could just get to that thing, and so sure enough, several times I worked up enough courage to make the dash, you know? It was like five seconds, but it was like pure terror, you know what I mean? Like I was just expecting the worst. 
But when I made it to the room, and I finally, the door, I opened the door, all my fear vanished. You know why? Because I was in the presence of my dad. And I knew no matter what happened, my dad was there, and he could take care of it. He knew that I needed help, or if somebody grabbed me, he could, he could rescue me. And I was safe in the presence of my dad. That's the way God is with you. That's the way God is with me. In this world, we're going to get fear. We're going to get fearful. We're going to be gripped with pains, and we're going to be gripped with fear, and we're going to be gripped with terror. But when we get in God's presence, it all melts away. And Paul was in knots, but he was relieved immediately in the presence of God. Aren't you thankful for God's presence? I mean, in your life, if you've never been there, I promise you, you're going to be there at some point in your life. To where everything seems like there's no solution and you just call out on God. And then at one moment, God's presence floods your heart and all of a sudden everything melts away. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Paul thought, I was going to die or they're going to kill me or is God going to come through for me? And God spoke to him, Paul, you're fine. I am with you. I have things and resources you don't even know of. You are safe. And all his fears immediately vanished. And by the way, when you're in God's will, you're in the safest place for your life. And no matter what, even when Paul got to the end of his life, he said, whether I live or whether I die, it's all good with me because I'm with God. <laughs> what a way to live your life. And Paul got this presence of God and he was relieved. Maybe you need the presence of God tonight. I pray that you'll find that in God's presence because only he can give that to you. So then they take and they drag him up to Galileo. And as a Roman authority in Achaia, he was uh, part of this, uh, this group that was uh, judging uh, the Rome, but they would also help with the matters of, of Israel and the Israelites. You've got to remember it was like dual citizenship at the time. They allowed them to dwell in their land, but they really didn't have to follow their rules. And so they let them uh, dwell there, these Jews and the, Rome, and the Romans. And so, but the Romans were pushing because they wanted to do something to uh, Paul and Christianity. So they were, they were pushing for the Jews to enforce Rome's imperial cult. Meaning that if you didn't bow down to the government, you didn't bow down to what they believed, then you would be killed. And they would consider it blasphemy, and they would, they would execute you. So when Christianity arrived, the Roman Empire has their human emperors and all Roman citizens were required to uh, fulfill the law, to participate in the festivals and the ceremonies and honored them as gods. Literally, the leaders of the government were gods. And if you didn't worship them, you didn't bow down to what they said, they killed you. And so what the Jewish people were doing was they were trying to push this through the end of their of this uh, through the beginning of this part of Christianity, and the Jews didn't like Christians, and so they thought one way we can get rid of them is to convince the Romans that they are not a part of the Jewish belief system because the Jews got a pass because they were considered a legal religion, one that had standing in their own merits. And so they didn't have to go under the Roman rule. They were able to worship their own God. But what the Jews were trying to do is say, Christianity is not part of us. But the Romans actually thought that the Christians was just a branch off of Judaism. Like the Messiah had come from them and it's just all part of the same thing. So they thought, well, if we can get a hearing, we can get it to this ruler 
we can bring Paul up there and hopefully he, would, he will declare Christians as going against the law of the Romans and he would kill Paul and stamp out this Christianity. And so they tried it and they brought it there and they brought it before uh, Galileo and he, he got, they tried to explain it to him. He didn't understand the theological differences. He was thinking, you all seem the same. You have this Messiah named Jesus who was a Jew. You believe in the Old Testament. They believe in the Old Testament. Everything's the same to me. I guess it would be kind of like trying to understand the Sunni and the Shiite Muslims. You ever try to figure that out, what the difference is? You really can't tell. But you know they seem to come from the same source, but yet you know they have differences, but you kind of keep them in the same category. That's what he was doing. Christians or Jews, same category for him. And so as they, as they looked at this, they brought it, and he looked to them, and he says, I'm not even dealing with this nonsense. You work this out yourself. So it backfired on him. And it just reminds us, no matter who is in charge in the government or the control of the world, God is still in control, right? I mean, he could have very well said, Paul, you can be killed for this, but God had already given the promise to Paul that you will be safe. And even to the top of the top, God is still in control. He's still in control over everybody. And so there was Galileo, and he, he did not uh, have him executed. He kicked it out of his court, of, the, uh, of, his, uh, of his rulership. That brings us to Ephesus, our next section. Look at verse 18. It says, so Paul uh, still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off in Caesarea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, uh, say a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he set and he sailed from Ephesus. And then when he had landed in Caesarea, he had gone up and greeted the church, went down to Antioch, and then after he spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia and in or, in order and strengthening all the disciples in order to strengthen all the disciples so think about Ephesus he was traveling through Ephesus and on the way he stops off at the barber shop right and well, why would he stop off at the barber shop you know what is this all about well there was a Nazarite vow that was taken by those in that time, for those who were really serious about praising God or serving God. And it was a Jewish uh, uh, offering. It was a Jewish vow that you would take. And there he was in this ritual or this vow that he took. And two things from, come from that vow. One, you would cut all your hair off and you would bury it as an offering of thanksgiving to God. And two, you would also proclaim that God is with you and he will continue to be with you. And through them, someone seeing you being bald, that you would still proclaim the protection of God or the goodness of God in your life. And I think Paul, just having the experience with God and comforting his soul and telling him you have nothing to fear, Paul took time to stop and be thankful to God for his provision. Isn't that good? I mean, you think about it. He was, he was giving God the glory for his victories. And many times in our life, we go from victory to victory to victory, and we never stop 
and reflect and thank God for our victories. I think this is a great example. It's a great example for me. Because as I read this, I thought about when was the last time that I stopped and thanked God for a victory in my life? A lot of times we get to where we just expect God to do these things. And we just think God's going to do them. And we don't have to lift a heart of thanksgiving and gratefulness. But might I remind you, every parent knows this. No one likes an ungrateful child, right? And there's one thing that gets under a parent's skin more than anything else is when they're ungrateful. And when your child is ungrateful to you, what do you typically want to tell your child? Do you know who puts food on your table? Do you know who gives you the roof over your head? Do you know who gives you the, you know, this and this? And you go down the list because you, you feel, you feel uh, you know, upset that they're not grateful and thankful. But I think what makes Paul such a great uh, uh, being used by God so greatly is that he paused in the midst of this to thank God for his victory and to proclaim God's goodness in his life. And when people saw Paul, it was an immediate reaction to know that God had done something good in Paul's life. And he was grateful for it. He was thankful for it. You think about our lives. When was the last time we publicly thanked God? When was the last time you publicly thanked God for your family? Or for your wife or for your husband? When was the last time we say we thank God for all the things he has done and the provision he's given for us? And Paul was setting the example that in the midst of serving, in the midst of God doing great things for you, don't forget to stop and thank God for it. I mean, that's why in our church, I love to have the blessings jar right there, right? And that blessings jar, we always uh, tell people, write down something you're thankful for. And at the end of the year, we always take those things and we read through them to think about the goodness of God. I think back over my life, and I think back over reading those blessings year after year after year, and we uh, put them in a little rubber band, and we put them in my office desk, and every once in a while, I'll just pull them out and start reading through them. Do you realize how much stuff God has really done in our church and the life of the people that we know? I mean, I, there, are, there is pray, answered prayer after answered prayer after answered prayer, time and time and time again. But many times we get together and we're on to the next thing and we forget to stop and be thankful for what God has done for us. I mean, what a great example. In the midst of ministering, Paul took time to thank God for it. Uh, I think in the, in the New Testament, in Romans, when God is listing the sins of grievances against the Old Testament Jews, Amongst the list with, you know, all the things that you would understand about God being upset about. He throws in him one little phrase that says, neither were they thankful. Think about that. Of all the things God was complaining about that the Jewish people did throughout the Old Testament that irked God. He put in there, neither were they thankful. Man, Thanksgiving will change your life. When you learn how to be thankful, it will change your perspective in God. And it will change your heart. And Paul knew this. He became thankful. He cut his hair. He took the time to stop and thank God for the victory he had and the victory that he was going to have. Then he moved on quickly because he didn't stay there long. He went from Ephesus to Caesarea. Then he departed to the region of Galatia, right? When we read our letters, thinking about this, Ephesians, right? That's one letter Paul wrote. That's the area that he went back to visit. Galatians, uh, Galatians uh, obviously here in the region of Galatia. 
um, and he went through there, and he was just going through there, and he was um, passing through them, but he was passing through there for what reason? To strengthen all the disciples. He was encouraging them. He was lifting them up. He was strengthening them. We often think of Paul as a great evangelist, but we don't think of him as the great disciple maker. But you can't be an evangelist if you're not a disciple maker, and you can't be a disciple maker unless you're an evangelist, right? They go hand in hand. And he encouraged and he strengthened those who knew uh, Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But let's get to verse 24. It says this when he moves on to Achaia. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in, at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, they, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he moves on to Achaia here, and you see Apollos here. Apollos, a man on fire for the Lord. Wouldn't that be a good description if someone were to describe you? Someone who is on fire for the Lord, right? He was fervent in spirit. He was serving God. He wanted to serve God. He was desiring to serve God, and he was eager to do it. And Apollos wanted to serve the Lord, but he was fervently trying, but he hadn't been discipled. He was speaking, and he was talking, and a Priscilla, I mean Aquila and Priscilla, who had heard Paul, took him aside and said, hey, let's, let me explain to you this further and more accurately so you have a better understanding of the Scripture. And man, how is there so many like Apollos out there that needs discipleship, right? They need another mature Christian or believer in Jesus Christ to show them how to live out God's word in their life, how to be a better disciple. Think about it. Jesus modeled this. He preached to thousands, but he discipled 12. He spent the time every single night and day with the 12 to disciple them personally. To pour into them what he knew and what he was, he was all about. And Paul did this as well. And now Priscilla, and, I mean Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila is doing this and we need to do it too. Like I said, we, we picture Paul as a great, uh, great evangelist, but yet he's also a discipler. Someone said an evangelist just blows in, blows up, and blows out, right? That's a good description, by the way. And many times when we go to church and people have evangelists and they always preach on something that the pastor told them their church wasn't doing, right? And you always thought, somebody told you that, you know what I mean? Because they would always preach on this. Like I said, they could blow in, they could blow up, and they blow out. But Paul not only blew in, blows up, and blows out, he discipled. If you look at what happened here, he arrives in Corinth and he needed, he, he, was, he was there and he ends up spending almost a year and a half, almost, it says there in scripture, a year and a half. And, and he's there, and what does he do? He, he befriends Aquila and Priscilla. He, get, he goes to work with them. 
He, he begins to make tents with them. He begins to make the rugs. He lived with them. He worked with them. He walked beside them like friends would do. And, and, and Aquila and Priscilla were a great couple used by God. And every time they come together, they were, you could see them early in the early church. They were used mightily by God to, to in early parts of the church. And even in Rome, they had a house church there. And Paul would come even through Ephesus. That's probably where he wrote through, uh, through Ephesus, uh, Ephesus where he wrote 1 Corinthians. And what we learn is that they committed themselves to Jesus and Paul was a major part of that process because he spent time with them, discipled them, and made a priority to disciple them. And if you're going to disciple someone, that's where it begins. you got to make time for other people. you gotta, you got to call them. you got to text them. you got to visit them. You got to go when they need help. You got to help them with things. Maybe in the hallway or here at church, you you disciple you disciple people by spending time with them, contact time with them. Brian shared with me through his discipling and talking to other people, and I think he uses it for an excuse. But he talks about deck time on a boat. I think he just wants to fish. But anyways, he says he likes to get people out on deck time on the boat. Because while they're on the boat with deck time, he gets to spend time with them, to get to know them, to hear them, to, to watch them. He still ain't taking me out on the boat, by the way. My feelings are hurt. <laughs> but it's an intentional investment of time into others. They got to know you want to be around them, and it takes time. Paul took a year and a half to spend time with Aquila and Priscilla. Second thing, when you spend that time, you got to be intentional, just not to hang out with them, but to train them. you got to train them in the spiritual disciplines. you got to train them in the formal times and the casual times. you got to instruct them, exhort them. Many, many times for me as a pastor, as I'm preaching, I just do exhortation. Like I just, I preach God's word and I counsel of God. And then what you do with it many times is when you go home is what you do with God's word. But yet, it also takes someone to come alongside of you casually and consistently and helps you take that and put it to work in your life. And, and he wasn't just, Paul wasn't just cloaked there at the church house. And the only time they saw Paul live out his faith was at the church or at the temple. No, he did it in real life. He worked with them. He talked with them. He built friendships with them. And they knew he was real and they knew he was authentic. And he trained them in the word. He taught them the scriptures. Could you imagine Aquila and Priscilla sitting down to have Bible study with Paul? I mean, what, a, what a remarkable gift. He trained them to love others. He told them how to love their family and ch other church members and neighbors and all those things. He trained them to bear the fruit of the Spirit. He trained them to serve others and to serve uh, others and the things. He trained them to put Christ first. All the things they could learn from Paul, he poured into Aquila and Priscilla. And what happened? They turned around and they did the same thing that Paul did to them. Paul was gone. But Aquila and Priscilla stayed. And they stayed there in Ephesus and they ran into this man named Apollos. Apollos who was on fire for God, who needed someone to disciple them. And Paul was, far, was long gone. But guess who was there? Aquila and Priscilla. And they heard him preaching and they heard him teaching. And they said, he, we can disciple this man and he can be used of God. Look at, look at how they describe Apollos here. They said, it says here in Scripture, he was eloquent. 
In the Greek, that means a gifted speaker and a deep thinker. This was someone who had substance to him. He had a lot of training. As a matter of fact, he would have been trained in the highest classical, classical language of Greek. He would have had a, a gifted speaker. He was taught how to speak. It also says he was mighty in the Old Testament scriptures. He was smart. He was trained. He had history. He knew the scriptures in the Old Testament. He had been instructed by the way of the Lord. He had a heart being fervent in spirit, which means boiling over, full of, full of enthusiasm. He was the kind of guy, when you got around him, his, his faith was contagious. And he was teachable. Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside, and he was teachable. And, and if you think about it, as you hear, he says his eloquence and his knowledge and all the stuff that he had, but he had to understand the full gospel of grace through Aquila and Priscilla, who wasn't as studied, who wasn't as polished, who wasn't as great as a teacher, but yet they poured what they had in them into Apollos. And as they did that and they discipled him, they sent ahead a letter to Achaia, uh, uh, Achaia and, they, and they, as they sent it ahead, said, this man is the real thing, accept him and be then listen to this man, Apollos. And he went there and he, he taught. And it says that he fervently, he fervently taught the Jews and he reasoned with them. Let me get back here to my scripture. It says in verse 28, For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So if we tie Acts in with Hebrews, what connection can we make from those two? We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, but it's my guess it was Apollos. Do you know why? Because Hebrews was written not in, classic, not in just the common Greek, but in classic Greek. If you read Hebrews, it's a deep thinker, right? It's someone who's eloquent. When you read Hebrews, it's written totally different than Paul's style or any other style we read in the New Testament. When you read Hebrews, you hear the depth of the knowledge that he has of the sacrificial system of the Israelites, right? And of all the Old Testament, of Moses, of Abraham. It, it's someone who had all the history and all the knowledge. But yet, he was pleading with the, with the Jews in Hebrews to say, Christ is the one, right? He was telling them, don't turn back because he's the real thing. And what does it say here in Acts? He was imploring and pleading and vigorously disputing the Jews from the scriptures that what? Jesus is the Christ. What's Hebrews all about? And so as you read through this, it's amazing. You put these things together and you see, and whether he did or whether he didn't, I don't know. You might not think he wrote Hebrews and you can be wrong. That's your opinion. All right. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't think so. But anyways, I, I re-upped my position once I read this. It just makes too much sense, right? And so he puts this process here, and he, he writes as well. He's teaching, he's learning, and he's, he goes out and he pours his heart to them. And as they poured into him, he went and poured into others. And yet all that Apollos did came from Aquila and Priscilla, which came from Paul, which came from Jesus, which came actually from Paul, which came to the man who instructed him for years after he had the road to Damascus experience. Remember, the man took him in and taught him in the wilderness, and God's Spirit taught through him, and you could trace it back and back and back again. 
You know what's so neat about this? I heard one pastor and one preacher preach about this before, and he talked about our crowns, and he talked about our rewards in heaven. And he said the reason why that there's going to be a judgment day or the judgment seat of Christ is that when and it comes at one specific point in time when God uh, ends the, the age of grace, and it comes at that time, and you are rewarded for your deeds and what you had done for the Lord at one time. And he said, the reason why it doesn't happen when you die is because your rewards that you have left in people on this earth is still going. Think about it. If you impact someone, you disciple someone, and they go share Christ, and they disciple others, that's still part of your reward. And how can you be rewarded until the very end? And you think about it in your life as you impact people's life and you're sharing Christ with them and you're discipling them. It's, it's a noble task because that's the way you pass on your faith. And you do that first starting in your home. If you take this, just this command here of Jerusalem and you say, I'm going to start in my home. You know, children are a captive audience, right? They are. You have them for about 18 years. For us, it's over 20 now. But anyways, you got over 20 years or 22 years or 24 years, right? You have them there, and they're captive because they're watching you. You can share Christ with them. You can share the Bible with them. You can share how life with them, and yet they're right there in your own home. I hear so many people getting upset about not being able to read the Bible at school and not being able to pray at school, and that's fine. But you can still do it in your own home. Those same people that are complaining about not doing it at school are not doing it at home. Start in the home, start with your family, start with your children, start with those around you. Then look to the church. There are several people who come to the church like Apollos who just need someone to spend some time with them and say, hey, let me take you under my wing, let me disciple you. It tells us in Timothy for the older women to take younger women and for the older men to take younger men and to train them up. I've been through this process before. I've been through marriage before. I've been through raising kids before. I've been through these things. And let me pour into you what I've had in my life. And that's the process we have. That's why I was never a fan of the Purpose Driven Church. Never a fan of that. I think no church should target just a specific age group of people. Because if you eliminate all the young and you eliminate all the old, then where in the world is the, are they going to meet in between, right? I mean, we need a, a church of old people and young people, and the old people should be, and I include myself in that, by the way, all right? I'm not calling you old. But we need the older people or the, you know, age-challenged people. How about that? They need the age, since we're being politically correct. The age-challenged people, right? We need them to disciple the younger people. And we need the younger people to be like Apollos and be teachable. I don't know about you, but there's a whole group of a generation. I won't name who they are, but it's a generation of that has been raised up that think they know it all, right? They've done nothing, but they know it all, all right? And, and anytime you try to teach them something, they're so unteachable. And everyone complains about it. Workplaces complain about it, right? I mean, churches complain about it. Families complain about it. Like, like they have all the great ideals and know how to do it, but they just never do it. You don't want to look at them and scream and say, just do it, right? Like, like if you know it, just do it. But yet they always tear something down. They always want to, you know, they always want to tear, out, tear down history and tear, out, tear down all these institutions, tear down all these things, but yet they have no real solutions. They've never done nothing at all. It's like, if you, if you want to do that, then proceed with the solutions that you have and do something about it. 
and young people got to be teachable, and old people have to be available. Listen, there's a reason why God keeps you around, right? You have a purpose and a meaning. If you're alive, you can impact someone else's life. And that was Paul's goal from the beginning all the way to the end. And now he's passed it on to Aquila and Priscilla. Now they've passed it on to Apollos. And Apollos is passing it on to others. And, it, and the cycle just keeps going and going and going and going. And the question is, are you willing to try, right? Are you willing to consider discipling someone? Because like I started from the beginning, there's a cross and there's a yoke. The yoke of teaching others about Christ and becoming more Christ-like is important in your life as a disciple. You know, I've learned in my life that as, as God pours into me, I am to pour it out to other people. Because if I don't, what happens in my life is it just, it just stops right there. And like one preacher said, some Christians just sit, soak, and sour, Right? What good is it you're getting the Bible study? What good is it you're understanding God's word? What good is it for you to come to church and know it all if you don't take it and apply it to someone else or to pour it into somebody else? We've got to be intentional about that. And Paul was a great disciple maker. And of all the great missionary journeys and the things that he did as an evangelist, him as a, as a disciple is just as important. And for us as a church, wanting people to come to know Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel is great. But discipling them is great too. It's all part of the process. We got to show them the cross and we have, to, we have to live the cross in front of them. We got to yoke up with them and walk with them and teach them and disciple them. And as we disciple them, they disciple others and it exponentially grows from there. That's the challenge of chapter 18 of Acts. So let's pray and then we'll take questions, um, some stuff that I might have missed, and then we'll uh, get to our prayer time. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for just the challenge that it gives us, Lord. We thank you for great examples like Paul, who was not only a, an evangelist, but a disciple maker. I do pray, as we consider our hearts and our lives, Lord, first with our own family. Are we making disciples in our own family? Are we making disciples with our children, our grandchildren? Are we intentional about spending time with them and training them in the things of God? teaching them prayer, teaching them Bible study, teaching them the important things, and then showing them the way so that they can do that in their own families, in their own homes. Are we doing that with our community? Are we doing that with other church members? We need those who will be willing just to spend time with others and say, hey, I've been through that. Let me walk with you through that and pour into them and share with them, and they can go from there to do it again to another and another and another God, I pray that you'll just give us the spirit of being a disciple maker. And I pray for us as a church that all we want to do is make disciples. That is the commandment that you have given us. And I pray that we will do that like Paul. And I pray even tonight, God, as we have all these young people here and there's those who are teaching them and pouring their lives into them, but that's not enough. I pray some of us will get interested in their lives and to begin to pour time into them and pour our life into them as well. And know that we're available to pray, to share God's word, and to encourage them in the Lord. And God, what a great, great example we have of your presence in our life. Maybe if someone's here tonight and they just need your presence, Lord, I pray tonight they will feel that. And maybe their heart is gripped with fear, but tonight they will hear, I am with you. And they will know that God is with them, and your presence makes all the difference in the world, Lord. And I pray 
or someone who might need that tonight, Lord, the promise that Paul had. Or maybe somebody tonight was just challenged to say, I want to thank God for he has done great things in my life and I've been publicly and even privately, I've been ungrateful. I've been unthankful and I need to just stop and lift my hands and raise my voice and say, thank you, God. Thank you for my family. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for all that you've done in my life. And like Paul, maybe we just need to spend a time of thanksgiving and remember all that God has done for us. Lord, I pray for us as we continue to uh, seek uh, you tonight, Lord, as we get to our prayer time. I pray that your spirit will lead us and guide us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.